Every year, thousands of people attempt the treacherous journey via North Africa and Turkey across the Mediterranean to reach Europe. Every single body represents a, a story and a life and, and hardship that they're leaving behind and you can't ignore that anymore. And every year, countless lives are lost on these journeys. Another journey to Europe, another tragedy at sea. Another sinking off the coast of Libya. Here, at least 20 drowned. Once again, the human cost of the migrant crisis is revealed by the bodies retrieved. We are currently facing the greatest displacement crisis since World War II. In 2016 alone, 5,096 people died or went missing trying to cross the Mediterranean. And 2017 may see yet another record-breaking year. No one can really escape the horror that we are seeing on this boat. It's uh, kind of cliche to say, but it just truly shows you that at the end of the day, like if we if we don't fight for each other, then then no one will. You're listening to Everyday Emergency, a podcast from Doctors Without Borders. I'm Nick Owen from Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders. Today, I'll be talking to a woman who has seen the refugee crisis up close and looked into the eyes of people risking everything for a chance of a better life. My name is Courtney Brickhand and I'm a nurse from Canada, from Vancouver, and I've been nursing for just about five years now. In this episode, we're going to be hearing a story Courtney wrote about a patient she treated on board Dignity First, an MSF search and rescue ship in the Mediterranean. We cover some distressing topics, including sexual violence, so please be advised, it may not be suitable listening for some people. In September 2016, Courtney kissed her friends and family goodbye and boarded Dignity First, an MSF search and rescue vessel operating in the Mediterranean. I think they were excited for me. Like it's, uh, They knew that the migration issue was of interest to me and was important to me, so... They were excited and I think happy that I wasn't going to a war zone. Dignity First was one of three search and rescue ships MSF had been operating in the Mediterranean in 2016. And although these are large, sturdy vessels, well-equipped to rescue hundreds of people stranded at sea, working on board is not for the faint-hearted. I made sure I had every anti-nausea pill that I could find on the market. Was that a problem when you are on the boat? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, was, I would say the first. I think I actually kind of shocked people with like my refractory seasickness. It was like a solid two months. Ooh. Yeah. That's not good. No, no, it wasn't. <laughs> but um, you get, yeah, I eventually got used to it. And then, then you, yeah, you adjust and it's fine. But it took a while. From the 1st of April until the end of 2016, MSF had up to three vessels in international waters off the coast of Libya at any one time, ready to rescue people making the perilous journey across the Mediterranean. Often, people are adrift for up to 48 hours in cramped, unseaworthy boats before they're spotted by a search and rescue vessel. But the ones that we find that um, have been in the water for quite some time, they can be in quite poor shape. Also, just psychologically, sometimes people are absolutely terrified. Sometimes they're, you know, there's not a lot of space, so they're fighting for space. Quite often, there would be a problem with the boat, either the engine or um, the smugglers and traffickers put down really cheap or really just unstable wood panels on the bottom of the boat, and that often starts to break. And when that breaks, the boat basically will kind of V and the people in the middle kind of get crushed and stomped on. 
And so when that starts to happen or if water starts coming on board, then people panic, as you could imagine. Um, one of the scariest situations is if people start to jump in the water because they see us and um, they're so desperate to be picked up that uh, they'll jump in. And then we have this situation where we're having to pick up, not we, but our sailors will have to pick up several different people out of the water and then more jumping in. And then um, it just becomes a very dangerous situation very, very quickly. Or sometimes we would even, we'd have boats that we'd come towards them and they would steer away from us. And the first time that happened, I asked one of the passengers, why were you steering away from us? And they thought, they said that they thought we were the Libyan Coast Guard and we would shoot them. Um, so it just shows a little bit about their mental state, where they're coming from, um, and the treatment that they've had uh, that up to that point. Although MSF rescued over 20,000 people in 2016, just over 5,000 people died trying to make the crossing. And these are just the people we know about. Many more have drowned, unnoticed and unrecorded. The island of Sicily is the point of entry for most refugees and migrants heading to Europe from Libya. But coast to coast, there's over 500 kilometers of sea to cross, and the Mediterranean is notoriously rough during the winter months. Just a minute ago, we were, I witnessed the most fantastic storm. It was, it was actually, you know, it was, it was incredible. And suddenly, there was bins just flying across the deck, and we're having to lash everything down. That's Ed Taylor, an MSF project coordinator aboard the Aquarius, another MSF search and rescue vessel operating in the Mediterranean. He was recording a video diary in the moments after a violent storm hit the MSF boat. I just want to stress to you that the boats are still leaving and, uh, and this is of great concern to me because you know, they're still being pushed out into the sea and it, you know, it could be that they get pushed out in calm weather but then in an instant it can turn and it can literally two metre waves out of nowhere and these boats are not designed to, to, to even enter the sea, let alone survive a storm. Despite the danger that awaits them, People are so desperate to escape Libya that they'll make the journey regardless. It depends. I would say that some some don't know. The smugglers tend to, uh, they don't want them to panic. They don't want them to resist. So often the smugglers will tell them it's a two-hour journey. We heard a lot. It's two hours to Italy. And of course, it's nowhere near that. It's a two-day two day trip, sometimes three. There's just no chance that they would get to Italy. They're way overpacked. There's not enough fuel. There's not enough food. People trafficking is big business in Libya, and gangs increase their profits by giving their paying passengers barely enough fuel to make it out of Libyan waters. We've had it even where they've taken the engine, so they've gotten them to like uh, however many miles off the Libyan coast and pluck the engine up and, and, uh, and let them just drift. People are generally aware of, um, of how dangerous it is, but I think sometimes they're they don't want to believe it. They're they're hopeful. So. And so when when people get on the boat, does the does the atmosphere sort of change immediately, or is it one more of exhaustion and? Yeah, it's again like sometimes uh, sometimes people are energetic and they're singing and they're praying and they're you know dropping to the ground and crying and it's it's really kind of happy emotional um, and sometimes people are. Yeah, sometimes people would come on and they just couldn't even speak. I, I would ask them basic questions. I was in charge of 
registering the women and they just wouldn't even be able to speak to tell me if they were pregnant, for example, which was information we'd try to get off, get right at the beginning, um, just because it was such an emotional journey. They've been terrified. They know, for the most part, um, what happens uh, with these boats and that many of them sink and many people die. So they're aware of that and uh, it's quite emotional for them when they come on. Um, but when you're on the boat, it's hundreds of people coming from all over, from so many different countries. And you just truly realize that like most of the world lives with these challenges and that we are just so, so, so lucky that we don't. But it is just completely chance where we're born and uh, and the lives that we we then get to live. And um, I think in, in our worst moments when it was literally mayhem and we had multiple people that we were trying to resuscitate and you know the passengers were trying to help us out and and we're as a crew trying to fight to to keep people alive and they're trying to fight to stay alive and it just felt really one like it's uh kind of cliche to say but it just truly shows you that at the end of the day like if we if we don't fight for each other then then no one will you know and that's that's kind of a big realization and kind of shook me in a way because I guess there were some parts of myself that it's easy to get to go to your air-conditioned cabin at the end of the day and and still feel like um, still feel like there's a little bit of a separation, but there there really isn't, you know. And you're all experiencing this together, and you're all experiencing it. Um, as humans, and and no one can really escape the horror that we were seeing on this boat. Having survived such a traumatic ordeal at sea, boarding an MSF vessel marks a new chapter in their journey. They're alive, they're safe, and they'll receive food, blankets, and medical care until they reach Italy. But as we're about to hear, for some people, there's no respite from the horrors they've experienced on the journey so far. And of course, their journey isn't over once they make land on Europe's shores. The following is a personal account by Courtney about a woman she met aboard Dignity First. It's read by actor Aspen Rice and names have been changed to maintain patient confidentiality, but what you're about to hear is true. Please be advised the following account is upsetting and may not be suitable for some listeners, but make sure to keep listening after the story as we'll be catching up with Courtney to find out more. feels a bit vulnerable admitting this to strangers, but I always cry after a rescue. Always. Even though my predominant feeling about the work we did is positive, I'm proud to say it's only taken me four years of nursing school and four years of working to learn to keep it together until after I leave work on an emotional day, but I usually manage to. It's often the day after we disembark our passengers, when the adrenaline levels decline, that it happens. I never know what will set me off. For some reason, it's usually mopping and thinking about my siblings during the post-rescue deep cleaning that does it, or seeing a skinny stray dog, or even just seeing the big, beautiful moon. But regardless of what causes the tears in the moment, the faces and stories start to flood my mind and the gravity of the hurt, pain, sorrow, hope and resilience of the 400-plus people we safely transported to Italy over the last 72 hours overwhelms me. 
I've learned that letting myself go through this process is a necessary part of me staying sane and healthy as a nurse, but tonight it feels worse than normal. It could be the exhaustion, the seven-hour disembarkation in the pouring rain, or the inordinate amount of gelato and coffee granitas I consumed post-disembarkation. But as I returned to the ship after spending a couple of hours on shore, the noise smells and even my colleague's presence overwhelms me and I can't figure out why. Earplugs and solitude are not working to calm me so I start to clean the bathroom which no one has had time to scrub over the last few days. This should have clued me in that I was about to have a meltdown because I hate cleaning and I'm not one of those people who manages to be remotely productive in their personal life when I'm stressed or sad. I am one of those people who just sleeps or half watches their favourite TV show while scrolling Reddit and eating candy until they feel better. But for some reason now, I am furiously cleaning. It doesn't help. I feel the compelling need to be off the ship immediately and in the middle of a beautiful British Columbian forest and I need it right the second. That being impossible, I try comedy. Yet I can't even make it through an episode of Parks and Rec before the rocking sea gets to me and I am sick in the bin of clean laundry beside my bed. I scrub the mess and try to sleep, but as I close my eyes it starts. A face that I cannot get out of my mind and a story that overwhelms my soul makes me sniffle and then sob. I've been thinking a lot about the lady I wrote about in my first blog post, Let's call her Mary as we need to protect her identity. She is in her early 20s, but is easily mistaken for someone much, much older. She is from a country that is not war-torn or in the news very often, but one that is rife with poverty and has little opportunity for a woman from a poor family. When she first boards, she appears quiet and forlorn. She falls asleep immediately and stays that way for several hours. In the evening, she asks me for a sweater. She feels chilled, even though the room is at least 35 degrees. I check her for a fever and she has none. It's my first real interaction with her. It's 9pm. I've worked 14 hours and I'm ready to be done for the day. I'm not rude to her in replying that it was not the time to ask for a new shirt and she should have asked earlier if she needed one. But if I'm honest, I am short and terse. A few minutes later, I reflect on how I responded. I think of how miserable this woman looked and I fish a warm shirt that I think will fit her out of the bag of donated clothing and bring it to her. The next day, I'm finishing an assessment with a patient when Pierre tells me that he has just seen Mary. She said she's had vague full body pain with no apparent cause, but after gentle questioning, admits to having been raped relatively recently. She consents to an HIV test, and we find she is HIV positive. I can see the look of anguish on her face as she receives the news, and her posture slumps even more than normal. I complete her consultation by offering the stomach-turning combination of antibiotics she requires. Then I offer to fill out a certificate attesting to the fact she has been seen by MSF for issues relating to rape. This experience is harrowing for the patient, who often relives the aspects of the assault while relaying the details to me to record. She wants to have this form, but it's been a long morning for her already and she is feeling sick. We make a plan for her to sleep for a bit, then I will complete it with her later in the day. 
She sleeps for nine hours solid and finally needing to close the hospital, I wake her at 9pm that night to fill it out. This form usually has a legal importance, as it can be used if the woman wishes to pursue charges against the person who assaulted them. As the person who assaulted her as a smuggler, it will likely only help her to receive follow-up care in Italy. To say it bothers me that this woman will never receive judicial justice in this matter is an understatement, but it is the norm, with so many victims of sexual violence we see. So I think if this form is saying, Dear patient, what happened to you matters. It is real. You matter. You are strong. This is not your fault. You did not deserve this and the person who violated you in body and soul should be brought to justice. But even if they are not, please know that you have been heard. I tell Mary all these things after she tells me the full story of her violent and terrifying experience. That she has been heard, that she is strong, that she matters, that she did nothing wrong and that none of what happened to her is her fault. This message is hard for me to deliver, even in English, and I hope my mostly terrible French is conveying the exact message I'm trying to relay. The woman's countenance has not changed. She looks completely defeated and like she has already had enough hardship for a thousand lifetimes in her 20-something years. But I see her eyes water as she hears me. It's one of those moments where I know that, unlike cleaning a messy wound watching a fever dissipate, or even seeing a critical patient get medically evacuated. There is no quick fix here. I am just a person trying to make something way beyond myself a little bit better, and that is not usually possible. My normally messy writing becomes obsessively neat while I record the details of her experience on paper as though somehow my painstakingly carefully made letters will give more weight to the importance of the certificate when it is read by her, law enforcement or other healthcare providers in the future, if she chooses to disclose it, of course. I have to be satisfied that we have been able to find her, hear her story, provide her some physical treatment and a referral for future care as she leaves the hospital that evening. Antonia, the medical team leader, has arranged for extra follow-up and support for Mary in Italy, and the next day she disembarks into the hands of people that I trust will treat her with the respect, kindness and the competence that she deserves. But as I say goodbye and wish her well, she is still as downcast and slumped over as ever. We both know she has a long road ahead of her, even if she is allowed to stay in Europe. We say goodbye to the last of our passengers and do a basic clean of the ship. I tie up some loose ends and take a wonderfully warm shower. We have a few hours off and the crew and I take a bit of time in the port city to walk around and eat dinner. We chat and laugh and take silly pictures. We, okay, mostly I, eat multiple gelatos and return to the boat to set off again and here I am where I started the blog. Laying in bed seasick and overwhelmed with the picture of this woman in my head. I felt off all afternoon and attributed it to the four hours sleep I had and the coffee my nervous system hates. But now I realise that I just feel horrible about what Mary and the other sexual assault victims we were able to treat on the boat have been through. I feel terrible 
that I was short with her that first night, when I had no idea what her story was and wonder how many other times I let fatigue get to me and wasn't as patient as I should have been. I start to cry. Hard. And call my mum, who, through my worst moments and Skype connections around the world, somehow always manages to make me feel okay about life again. We talk for a few minutes before the call drops. I give up on sleep and start to write this. I wish the follow-up story about the woman who inspired my first blog was happier. I wish it was an uplifting and cheerful one. I have lots of those as well, really. But this is the woman I feel like I was writing about, and her story is so, so common. I wish we didn't live in a world where, just by accident of birthplace, two women sit side by side, one who has had a life of relative peace, health and security, and another who has had a life of poverty, violence and struggle. I wish she didn't have to battle to survive and fight across a desert than a sea to even have a chance at the benefits of a life I've always known. As usual, it's at this point in the downward spiral of my thoughts that I have to admit to myself that there is not much more that I can do in this moment than centre all my energy and wishes for strength, forbearance, future peace and happiness. So... To the woman who has just used all her money in the world to make a journey far from everything and everyone she knows, sailed from the shores of Libya in a horribly dangerous dinghy to the middle of the sea and on to the Dignity first, and then from our boat to the shores of Italy, I now know a tiny bit more about you, your life and your journey. I want you to know that you are strong. You are intelligent, you are beautiful and capable, You are resilient, your journey thus far and that little bit I know about you proves that. I wish you things that I struggled to put into words when I was with you, and even now. I wish you all the absolute best for this life. Bon courage, ma soeur. So how does it feel listening back to that? Um, you know, it hasn't been terribly far from me, uh, since I've, since that moment, really, since I've gotten off the boat, it's been a month and a half now. No, almost two months. And, uh, yeah, it hasn't been terribly far from me, so it doesn't, doesn't feel very different, I think. You feel like you're almost sort of still in that mindset. Yeah, yeah. It's such a, it's such an awful story. How many of the, the women that you were treating on the boat would you would you say had been through sort of similar experiences to to mary it's it's hard to put a number on it because we we did try to sort of actively case find um we'd ask we tried to ask everyone um all of our patients if they'd have had that experience so we could help address it but during a lot of our rescues it was just too busy um that we couldn't so it was more people who were approached us usually for a pregnancy test or with uh with symptoms that um that would uh tip us off to to go down that path of asking so uh, it's a lot it's a lot of women though even the journey to libya is fraught with danger and if people do make it there unscathed once in libya abduction torture and rape is rife and organized traffickers operate with impunity you know, a lot of them are leaving terrible situations at home. Um, 
in their home countries and then they're really vulnerable from the moment they start the journey from wherever their home country is to uh, to our boat basically it's the whole trip that they're they're suddenly a lot more vulnerable and uh, that's why a lot of women really don't make the trip because um, it is so much more dangerous for them not that sexual assault doesn't happen to men um, but they are kind of a walking target and once they get to Libya it's uh, it's just so common the uh, a lot of women would tell me that uh, and this is something we heard repeatedly that the smugglers would come in they'd all be sleeping in a big room and the smugglers would pick a different woman every night so we had some women uh, one who told me that she found a like a freezer box basically and would hide in it every night um, a dad who said that he would try to hide his daughter every night in a different place and the women who weren't raped if we if we asked them if they'd been violated their almost their typical re response was not me I was lucky um, so many other women were raped and uh, yeah it's something that is an everyday everyday concern for them I mean, how, how do you cope with hearing those stories day in, day out? Um, it's hard. It's It definitely builds up. It's kind of a cumulative uh, trauma, which is kind of hard to admit to yourself, I think, as a caregiver, because you, uh, you don't want it to be about you, you know? But it is, it is a, a really hard thing to experience, just woman after woman after woman. Um, coming in with these horrific stories and you can put yourself in their position. I mean, it doesn't, it's not hard to do. And uh, yeah, it builds up, which is uh, why in this blog post, I'm uh, kind of melting down a bit. Um, during the emergencies, you really, uh, you, you can't react. Um, you have to be focused on the job at hand, and that's the only way to do to do your job. But yeah, it can kind of, you know, you are actively pushing, pushing away the feelings, and uh, it's it's a bit easier in the emergencies. It's a bit easier uh, when the adrenaline's pumping, um, and and like I said, you don't have a choice. But in the quieter cases, when you're sitting with a woman and you're alone in the hospital because. It's the only private place, so you've cleared it out. And you know that you're going to have to sit down with her and, and go through this experience with her so that you can fill out the sexual assault certificate. And um, and she's telling you about her life, and you can't help but compare um, the life that you've had with the life that they've had. And, you know, I don't think any of us would say that we've had walks in the park for life. We've all had our trials, but... For me, it just, it doesn't even compare, you know? So it is, it is hard to not get emotional in those moments. And uh, I think on that rescue, I think we had maybe four or five rape victims of maybe 25 women. Um, and so it's a, it's a lot. Um, it's a lot to hear. It's a lot to kind of, to stomach and to try to make sense of in your brain. A couple of them on that one were pregnant um, from the rape. And so now you take a woman who's already incredibly vulnerable, has nothing and no one. And now she's five months pregnant. 
and she tells you that she wanted to go to the hospital and she couldn't go to the hospital because uh, they were told that the chance of them getting basically kidnapped and sold into sex slavery was so hard. So it was so high. And um, one of my patients told me like, you know, I didn't believe it. I was going to go anyway. But one of the other girls did go to the hospital and she didn't come back. And so these are beautiful, young, strong, so like these women are so intelligent and, um, and yeah, I mean, you see your sister, you see your, your friends in them and, uh, they can't even access medical care after they've been raped, you know, sometimes repeatedly. And you know that the psycholo- psychology behind one is that often, behind a rape is that often, even in these circumstances, a woman feels like she was somehow at fault. And uh, they don't come out and say it, but when you kind of explain to someone, you know, frequently, this is how a woman feels. Um, is that something you're experiencing? They might say no, but they tear up. And... Uh, yeah, it's, it's not a, a nice experience for anyone, I think. Just hearing these stories day in, day out, understandably takes its toll. Not to mention the toll it takes on the women who have endured these things. Where possible, MSF offers counselling to our staff, but stuck on board a boat in the Mediterranean, it's not exactly easy to open up about your feelings. After one particularly traumatic rescue, we had the psychosocial team call everyone on the team and just have a check-in. But the uh, the only phone is a sat phone on like the bridge, which is where everyone is working and passing by. So I mean, you're sitting talking to a counselor, like where everyone's smoking around you, where everyone gets like cleared out of the bridge, like it's Courtney's time for counseling, guys, get out. And I mean. I, yeah, I've I've seen a counselor a couple times since I've been home, and I think uh, to some degree it's just you've seen some really unfortunate stuff. It's grief, and you have to work through it, and um, and it's just time and 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 stuff. So we we are offered counseling, but to some degree it's just uh, shitty shit. You can edit that out. <laughs> to some degree, it's just uh, it's just working through, uh, seeing some some traumatic stuff, and that's what I think we all have to do in in healthcare sometimes. Even though life on board a search and rescue boat can be traumatic, it offers a unique insight into the lives of people most of us just hear about in the news. They become real people. I mean, it's easy, even before I went on the ship to see just boatloads of people and they're kind of anonymous. And uh, it's interesting as as they come on, you start to get to know them and you recognize like, oh, I saw that person that first day. And, and they become, you know, they have personalities and they're really funny or, you know, this one has a really ta- terrible story or every, how do I say this? Everything just becomes really real and really personal and you can't, every every single body represents 
a, a story and a life and, and hardship that they're leaving behind. And you can't ignore that anymore, which you can do when you're watching the news. Yeah, you kind of just recognize that every boatload is a boatload of people that if they go under, they've got family wondering what happened to them. You know, they've got family relying on them. And it's, uh, it's heavy. It's, it's a lot a lot of them won't get asylum, but a lot are true asylum seekers. And even if they're an economic migrant, you know, they're economic migrants with with uh, stories that are, are just shocking and lives that have been have been huge challenges. So I, I it's uh, I, I think as long as we have this massive disparity between our society and and theirs, there will be these push and pull factors that are kind of uncontrollable. There are as many different reasons for climbing onto an unseaworthy boat in the middle of the night as there are people making this treacherous journey. For Courtney, being on board the boat was a chance to understand some of these reasons and to get to know the people who felt they had no other choice than to risk their lives to reach Europe. And even on a boat in the middle of the Med, Courtney found herself exposed to a barrage of comments in the news and on social media about the influx of people heading to Europe. It seems every armchair critic wants to voice their opinion about this particular issue. It's uh, infuriating, to say the least. I actually had to kind of stop with any sort of media while I was on the ship because in healthcare you might read about a, a car accident and you cared for the the victims in your emergency or whatnot. But it's very infrequent that people are so heartless. It's very infrequent if there was a car accident that there's 2,500 comments talking about how that person should die because that person should never have gotten in the car. Um, Whereas that was the reality of being on this boat. I would read about my day and my patients. It makes me angry. And then I would read a comment about how everyone should have just sunk to the bottom. And this is by someone who I'm going to take a mad guess and say is someone sitting in a pretty comfortable position. Even if by our standards, they're not millionaires. If they're here, they were born here, you've been given a leg up on the rest of the world. And uh, that sort of privilege and entitlement um, is really hard to watch and really hard to get used to. Despite the inevitable heartache on board, there were countless moments of mutual understanding, respect and compassion. There are a lot of good moments too. I mean, the the difficult ones are the ones that definitely stick in your brain a bit easier, but there were so many lovely moments and uh, so many wonderful people and funny people and good conversations and uh, lovely hugs and just so many people that so many moments where even if it was a really horrible horrible situation they would look you in the eye and thank you and there was this moment where where it was obvious that for the first time in a very very long time they were treated like a human being and that's an incredible privilege I mean it's terrible that it is like that but to get to be that person who smiles and pats someone on the back and who provides care in a in a way that they feel is honoring them as a human being that's a massive privilege and the coolest coolest part of this job so a lot of good moments as well
After four months aboard a boat, Courtney will return to her native Canada and take a well-earned rest before going back to work as a nurse. If you'd like to read more about Courtney's experiences on board Dignity First, head to blogs.msf.org and search for Courtney. You can also find out more about our search and rescue operations on our website at msf.org.uk slash Mediterranean. On that page, you'll find a myth-busting article about Europe's so-called migrant crisis. As always, it's your feedback, likes and shares that help spread the word about MSF and the people we help. Next time on Everyday Emergency... Just the death, just death, 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 people coming in wheel, wheelbarrows. British emergency doctor Javed abdul has seen it all. He's worked with MSF in Iraq and South Sudan, he's been aboard our search and rescue vessels, and he's donned a protective suit to work in the high-risk zones of our Ebola wards. In our next episode, we'll be speaking to him about a patient who changed his life following the 2010 earthquake in Haiti. This episode was produced by Nick Owen, Fabio Bassoni, and Jesse Gutch. For more true stories from the front line of medical emergencies, subscribe via your podcast provider or visit msf.org.uk slash podcast. <laughs>